Welcome back to the Thermodiet Podcast. I'm your host, Jayton Miller, and I'm here with Nicholas Simpson. How you doing, Nick? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, so can you kind of tell us, you know, your background story, how you got here, and kind of what you're involved in? Yeah, so probably a, a bit of a, a meathead growing up and uh, just like lifting things. So I did a bit of competitive powerlifting and weightlifting, but I did my degree in kinesiology and in the last year of that did some work terms with the Canadian Sport Institute um, and got hired on after that uh, and was with them for about 10 years there. And during that time, worked with the Canadian national speed skating team. And well, that was, was a bit of a unique situation, but for a good part of that time, I was working with almost every development level. So uh, young athletes from 14 years old uh, with their group programs all the way up to the Olympians that we had. And then I think maybe around uh, the last six years or so, I want to say, with the university swim team as well. And then I'm, I'm still currently working with the swim team, but now uh, uh, more on the private end with vital strength and physiology here in Calgary. Okay, sweet. So um, what are some of your principles whenever it comes to movement, some of the things that you look for when optimizing an athlete? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I guess that forms part of the backstory too about how my perspective has changed over the years. But um, when I first started out, I had that perspective that a lot of strength coaches still have that like my job was to get athletes strong in the weight room and build their general capacity. And then it was pretty much up to the athlete and the sport coach and whoever else to transfer that uh, into the actual sport. Uh, but through my time with speed skating and again, being able to work with everyone from those different development levels, I was able to see that we had young athletes that could outlift our national team athletes. Uh, when we had national team athletes that could uh, that weren't winning medals that were lifting more than the athletes that were winning medals. And it wasn't just isolated to the weight room either, but we had similar thing happen in the physiology lab where athletes could perform better on the bike. But uh, when it came to what actually mattered, I just wasn't translating. And speed skating is a pretty technical sport and it's a little bit of a unnatural looking movement, but uh, through that process, I was trying to troubleshoot what, uh, what was holding them back basically. And what could I do from the strength end of things that would actually matter more for this population of athletes. And so what I, where I move to and where I start now is on the biomechanics end and looking specifically uh, 
what can I see and what can the coach see or the therapist see in their movement when they're actually doing their sport? And then what are the specific ways that uh, we can address um, the deficiencies that we see? And often it's not uh, just squatting anymore. Uh, it's something more specific than that. Uh, and so I can give a few examples of, of that, but um, what uh, what it would look like again is um, often the coaches would get frustrated if they'd given the same technical cue to an athlete uh, multiple times and if the athlete still wasn't executing it. And then at that point, they're like, well, I've I've done my job. I've told them what they're doing. They're still doing it. What else can I do? And uh, so that process of troubleshooting it, well, aside from just the choice of uh, them choosing to execute that technique, what are the other factors that are uh, going to influence that choice for the athlete consciously or unconsciously? So like if you're asking a skater to sit low, or if you're just telling someone to get lower into a squat, uh, rather than just assuming it's a choice, actually checking, do they have the mobility to do that properly? And if they have the mobility to do that properly, um, what's their strength like in those positions? So maybe they could get there, but then you put a load on them or an intensity where uh, they can't support that position with those with their current strength levels. So they're just adopting positions where they can support the load or intensity you've prescribed to them. Uh, and, you know, from that end of things, then it gets very specific about, uh, okay, I can't just, it's not just a general quality strength. It's very context specific and, uh, if I want them to get stronger, like squatting in an upright position, I really need to enforce that. I can't just tell them to do front squats because there's still a lot of uh, room for error, I guess, or, or technical things that aren't going to contribute to that. Um, did you have uh, any more like uh, specific thoughts around that or? Um. So what would be some of the most common patterns that you would see in some of these athletes? Um, and then whenever it comes to getting them to actually make the connection to what you're telling them and how they can perform that physically, what are some of the uh, things that you would see that would kind of um, allow them to get that cue within their body? Yeah, so a lot of people present with very similar patterns. So uh, many people are tight in the hip flexors where their hips are going to tilt forward and they'll have that antiversion there. Uh, many people have a tendency to be a little bit sort of duck-footed where their feet are turning outwards. Uh, many people will be more rounded in the shoulders and upper back and that's true for anyone for general population uh, or athletes from a variety of different sports. And so recognizing 
whether those patterns are there or not, and then how that's going to um, influence their movement can be a big thing. And then there can be a lot of different ways you can intervene for that. I would say the most common one is that uh, people just try to release the tight muscles. Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad approach, but it's only one side of the equation. And so if you think like every muscle has, or every joint has at least uh, a muscle on either side. So you can think, uh, you know, elbow joint, I have biceps and triceps here, biceps going to pull it this way, triceps going to pull it this way. So if say your arm was stuck like this for some reason, uh, the usual approach would be to say, okay, this muscle pulls it this way. That means this is too tight. So let's release that and then get it back to a more neutral position. Uh, but when you realize it's, uh, it's not just about the tight muscle, but it's about the balance of uh, strength and tension on either side, then it can be just as much about sort of increasing tension relative uh, uh, on the weaker side and not just about releasing tension on the tight side. And that can be important because um, tension provides stability. And it's very common that uh, the people area or the people uh, who have tight areas have usually or sometimes sustained injuries around there. So shoulder gets sore, uh, body senses that it's unstable, muscles tighten up to increase the stability and protect that, uh, just muscle guarding basically. Same thing with low back injuries. Someone's hurt their low back and then hip flexors, hamstrings, uh, things that can crank up the tension there so it moves less uh, are going to get tighter. And if you, again, if you just release that tension, it can improve symptoms caused by that tension, but you've also added instability into the system. So you need to be thinking about how can I create the desired positions without also introducing instability. And that's a little bit about that concept of uh, tensegrity uh, or tension and integrity. But the idea that our, I think an engineering concept originally, but that our bones are basically floating in space and they're suspended by our uh, muscles and tendons and ligaments and fascia similar to how a suspension bridge is held up. And then just uh, with the analogy I just used, you don't necessarily want to add a lot of flack to the lines. You want to figure out how you can keep support there, uh, but then adjust things to get the range and the positions that you want. And um, I'd say that the actual interventions would vary a lot. Uh, and I think this is where things can get creative and, and fun, uh, but also meaningful for the athlete. So you can, uh, if I have, if I had a speed skater where uh, they can't get a full arm swing uh, because something seems restricted around here, 
rather than just doing uh, like a pec stretch and isolating that one component, you could do uh, a lower load cable movement where they're in a more specific position. So the tension across the rest of their body is more similar to how they're going to use it. Do something like the fly in that range where it's getting an eccentric lengthening and they're sort of developing the control along with the range uh, on all sides of the joint. So do you ever incorporate traditional, uh, like traditional stretches in that case, or is it more of like um, an active movement that's going to allow for that uh, tensegrity to take place? And then do you incorporate some of the myofascial release? Cause you're actually the first one that threw me down the functional patterns rabbit hole and anatomy training. So I've, I've been like diving way into that. So what are some of your thoughts in that realm? Yeah, I would, I don't really use traditional stretching anymore. Uh, and, uh, for that reason where it tends to be, uh, more trying to add slack to the system. It's often not very specific, uh, to where the tissue might be bound up. So you can think like if you had some trigger points that are causing that tissue not to glide well or to extend well, if you just stretch it in a normal way, uh, you'll tend to get a lot more distal tension in the muscle. Uh, I think an an analogy that Naudi used was uh, if you tied a knot in an elastic band, and then you're trying to stretch that, you're actually winding up that bound area even tighter. Uh, So I do, and and just experience over the years with stretching was uh, the return on investment was very low. Like uh, often you would spend a long time stretching, get some results, but um, not really a lot for what you put into it. Issues would come back uh, fairly quickly. Sometimes you would have that issue of if someone had an injury, you stretch something tight, then the stretching would flare it up. And I have had much better success using more uh, myofascial release uh, or when it's available, uh, referring people to therapists who can do some soft tissue work. But uh, yeah, and not this superficial that uh, foam rolling that many people do, but just kind of finding those sore spots and trigger points, pinning them down, and then uh, actually searching for that muscle relaxation or that actual feel of uh, being able to let it go and, and let that lacrosse fall or whatever it is sink deeper. Definitely. So, a lot of the movements that I see you do are very unique and they kind of go along with some of the slings, like the oblique slings that they were talking about. Can you kind of go into some of the specifics as to why those movements are beneficial and kind of how they would help an athlete? Yeah. Uh, and like uh, anatomy trains, the fascial lines, that was something I was aware of, but, and I might've I read portions of the books much earlier in my career, uh, but just not really paid a lot of attention to it. And then uh, when I started to try to problem solve 
these issues that athletes and myself were having in a more specific way and reread that material, it became much more relevant. Uh, and it just, it made sense. Um, and also realizing that like if someone had aches and pains, not just looking at the area that's happening and also my experience, uh, with the way the good physios and therapists with our team or that I'd interact with elsewhere, we're treating people, but you know, my shoulder hurts. Uh, and then they do something in your thigh and then it feels better. So those experiences, uh, built up over time, but, uh, an analogy I use for the athletes, uh, and with the swimmers, we have some young college guys in there, uh, a lot of them still want to have an aesthetic physique uh, with big pecs. Uh, they want to do some conventional lifting to put on mass. Uh, I don't like fully saying no to people. I still like people to make their own decision. But uh, one example that resonates a little bit is if you were throwing a baseball uh some of the muscles involved in throwing that ball are your uh, your pecs. And you can think, all right, right, again, for the swimmer, if they're doing a swimming stroke, uh, and it's intuitive that if you made those muscles stronger, they might contribute to that movement being stronger. But if you look at those uh, good athletes and you'll know that having a very good like range of motion for the throw, uh, uh, a good range of motion for your swimming stroke is really going to contribute uh, to what you can put into that movement. So if you had less strength here, but you could really like stretch that arm out and get a good elastic whip for your throw, uh, that's probably going to contribute more power than if you upped your bench by 20 pounds, but you get so tight in that process that you can barely stretch your arm back. And so uh, it's very common for me to see, and with those typical postural patterns, uh, there's many athletes and swimmers included where they can't get their arms in a good overhead position without like really overextending the backs or bending their elbows to take tension off that stress. So why would I try to add more tension to that system that's probably going to pull them into those patterns even further uh, before I can um, give them the range that they need? And that power uh, that you're going to need for a throw uh, or a swing or a swimming stroke, you need to anchor that from somewhere. And so... um, it's kind of an analogy, like you can't shoot a cannon out of a canoe, but if you have a lot of power in your upper body and you don't have the strength to match that in your core or your leg where this arm is going to anchor from where it's pulling, then you you lose those postures that are going to be good for you, and then you lose that power from the throw. And again, for the swimmer... Uh, Maybe as soon as they start pulling, uh, their 
chest lifts up, the back arches, and then they lose their streamline in the water. And that's a pattern that might be encouraged if you're just doing a regular bench press and kind of arching up to make it a little bit more of a decline, shorten the range, and then you're adding tension to these pecs. So very few movements done today, I would say, uh, really develop that chain as a whole. They'll kind of do everything part by part if they do get to everything. So you'll like do a chest exercise and an arm exercise and a core exercise and a leg exercise. But that's a far cry from actually developing those things in unison and in a way that actually contributes well uh, to the movements um, that you need. And I like using automotive analogies a lot. Uh, it's fairly intuitive to people, and it's really not that different if you're looking at the performance of a car uh, or a race car. But you can think about, uh, uh, like, say you had a stock Honda Civic uh, or some other economical car, and then you just, well, first, first off, if you if you try tearing that thing down the road when it doesn't have a lot of power, like it's not going to go very fast and the chance that it really damages itself are not that great. But then if you soup up the engine, but you don't soup anything else up in that car, now the chances that you could blow something up are pretty good. And I think that's what happens a lot with regular strength training is that we build up all these engines in the body, uh, but then the drivetrain, so to speak, uh, and the wheels are not really up to par. And then people get injured, and they're even if they don't get injured, they're just not able to express that power very well. Uh, along the same lines, if you wanted to test the power of uh of a car you could either hook the engine directly up to a dyno and get a reading that way or you could drive your car onto some dynos and or some rollers and test the power at the rear wheels and i think it's uh not uncommon to lose uh 10 percent plus of the power just through the drivetrain so if your engine has 500 horsepower when you hook that dyno up directly, you might sense 440, 450 or something at the rear wheels. And what really matters is not how much power the engine has, but how much power actually gets into the road when you're talking about making a fast car. And again, that's where... Uh, I think a lot of strength coaches get lost is they're saying like, I'm just going to keep putting bigger engines in and then in that drivetrain thing is up to someone else. Uh, or it's just given a little bit of a nod and it, it, it never really develops in unison. Well, um, yeah. Okay. So, um, I guess as a drivetrain analogy, would you view the kind of like the core and the transverse abdominis is something that you would want to focus on in terms of allowing that to happen? Or would it just be more of like an overall body integration into that? Uh, yeah, I think the 
transverse abs can be a big part of that because, uh, and I saw the sort of physio rehab world do a 180 with this, but I think it was popular in the, in the nineties to talk about, uh, kind of hollowing and isolating the TVA. You're using ultrasounds to try to make sure you got the contraction there, but nowhere else. So I think that was too far on the isolated end and seemed like people didn't get good results with that. And then there was a shift away from that fully. But uh, I think that uh, those inner core muscles are better suited for stabilizing the spine and uh, allowing proper breathing during movement. And when you just do a typical sort of core bracing, like uh, most people do in the weight room where you're just locking and bearing everything down and using your external core muscles in that, it can provide you with a strong cylinder uh, for doing a deadlift or squat or whatever it may be. But when you bear down like that, you're locking your rib cage down, you're restricting your ability to get a big breath, you're locking your rotation down in your T-spine. Uh, and so I think you want to use those external core muscles more elastically along with the, the lines of those fascial slings so that, say, my one leg is connected through the core to the opposite arm. I want to be able to stretch that out so I can use it as a big elastic to whip something around. And, uh, and that entails having good control of the TVA, TVA so you can stabilize uh, your spine while you're doing that. Um, and again, like very common in the weight room that we've taught people how to brace and then everyone's T-spine is locked up and uh, they can't breathe during movement. But then the solution's just been to be, well, we're just, we're still going to keep doing what we're doing. And then I'll try to add these like low load exercises to teach you how to rotate there, or I'll keep doing what I'm doing in the weight room. But now you have to go get manual therapy and they're going to fix it for you. And very few people think have a, a good picture of the whole where you can develop it all together. Um, and it's not that those engines aren't important, uh, but it, it is important, I think, that everything develops together. And so I would want to make sure that someone could exhibit good mechanics in the movements that matter to them uh and then if you see something falter in those mechanics you're trying to bring the weak link up and you're not just uh throwing sort of the kitchen sink of, of weight room stuff at it and then dealing with all the injuries and compensations that result from that hmm. so if someone was trying to focus on allowing for the external abdominals to be elastic yet still trying to figure out how to um, have the intra-abdominal pressure that's necessary, um, what are some of the cues that you would give somebody in that case? 
Yeah, well, I would uh, I would start with low load. I wouldn't do it during a dynamic exercise. Basically, I would uh, I would start with someone just lying on their back on the ground when they don't have to worry about gravity a lot less, even to hold tension in their spine. Start with their knees bent so that uh, they have less tension and less. Uh, sort of stretch from their hip flexors, pulling their hips into anterior tilt, which is going to make it harder to get that. But then just giving those cues of uh, breathing into the rib cage, uh, hollowing their core or pulling the belly button sort of in and upwards into the rib cage, doing that, the vacuum posing like the old school bodybuilders used to do. Uh, but getting those mechanics down where they're comfortable uh, breathing into their rib cage, keeping the chest high and the back neutral in that low load scenario, uh, and then moving that to standing on the wall, and then maybe into some uh, um, fairly easy, just like a standing overhead press with one dumbbell, and making sure they can work on the same mechanics there, neutral spine hollow, big rib cage, uh, pull the belly button up and in, make sure they're not tilting their hips forward and just being really anal about technique through that process and realizing that if, if they can't even get it standing or lying, then the chance that it's going to happen in a more dynamic movement is just pretty much zero. Okay. So, how do you see some of this stuff whenever you begin to incorporate it in the gym kind of transfer over into everyday life? Yeah. Like you, you can't separate anything. Um, so again, if you, if you're doing a typical lifting uh, and using form, that's typical. So say you're, just squatting with your toes out uh, to allow more range in your hips when you're squatting. You're adding tension to the system in a way that starts to hold you in those positions no matter what you're doing. Uh, and so if people do a lot of lifting like that, they'll have tendencies to start to walk more duck-footed uh, and then hold their their posture like that and the same thing the other way around where if you can get them fixing those dysfunctions in the weight room then they'll be more likely to maintain that neutrality um standing tall with long spines and keeping their feet neutral more often when they walk and i do think that for most people they do want to be starting from a place of neutrality. And you can think that, um, say, like, if you're starting from neutral, you may have, like, three spaces that you could move from either side of that for a given joint. So say that's your hip internal or external rotation. Now, uh, say that range or the number of steps never really changes but now your starting point is out here with your toes out maybe you can make it two spaces 
but then you're at the uh, bony end range for that joint. And then now you're further away from your bony sort of endpoint for internal rotation. Let's say you make it two, and then there's just too much passive stiffness to get you any further. So not being in a place of neutrality from just like a standing uh, kind of resting place is really going to start to limit your ability to uh, travel to either side. And for sure, there's going to be sports and activities uh, that favor certain positions more, uh, but you just have to be aware of that. Uh, and this is a debate that happens often, like, uh, you know, what what adaptations uh, as a result of a sport or activity are natural because of that. And like, if we bring someone back to neutral, is that going to be worse for their performance? And that's where I, um, I think it also matters, like how you get them back there again, like, are you just releasing things or are you building strength and tension in the opposite direction? And then coming back to the basic biomechanical concepts like, uh, you know, work uh, in terms of energy, uh, every action or movie, movement you want to do has an energy cost associated with it. And um, the equation for that is just force times distance. And the same thing applies for uh you moving your own body on the ground or ice or in the water, whatever it may be. So the more range you can move through, that gives you more space to apply force to the environment. So if your uh, range starts to get restricted, then uh, naturally that's going to reduce the amount of energy you can transfer into movement. Uh, and so you need to understand that, uh, yeah, if I'm always doing similar things, like I'm always biasing hip extension and external rotation, and I'm not really doing much to balance that, then that's going to, that tension I'm building on the one side of things is going to start to pull me one way. But if you start going too far that way, and again, it reduces your ability to move further that way because you're already a third of the way or you're already halfway there. Well, now I have less room to do work if I could normally move through that full range. Okay. Interesting. Um, another topic that I really wanted to touch on was kind of your um, perception of muscle physiology and how the muscle fibers are actually in a kind of like vortex shape and how that uh, creates a certain amount of tension and how we can work with the body to kind of promote, um, you know, working with the mu muscle fibers in that way. Can you kind of uh, go into that and maybe define that a little bit better for people who don't really um, know? Uh, well, you might have to clarify what you mean by the, the vortex shape in the muscles. Um. I think like through the tissues as a whole, you might uh, see some of those patterns develop. I'm not sure if you would see that 
uh, in a single mu- muscle if you isolated it. Uh, but definitely depending on the um, place in the body and the role that muscles um, typically have, the muscle fibers will be arranged in different ways. So you might have uh, like long straight muscle fibers uh, where they, they're basically pulling in a straight line or you might have something uh, like the calf muscles where the muscle fibers are coming at uh, oblique angles to their line of pull. Uh, and then through some muscles, uh, that angle can actually change through contraction. And that might be a little bit of the uh, spiraling uh, that you're referring to there. But generally, uh, the longer a muscle is, so the number of sarcomeres in series or the contractile units in series, uh, the faster it's going to be able to contract. Um, but that comes at a bit of a trade-off of force. And then when you have that arrangement uh, at angles there, they'll be able to uh, provide more force and sort of uh, fit more fibers into the same area. Uh, but because it's pulling at a bleak angle, you'll lose a little bit of a power of that. But then that's where that gearing comes into play. Um, where that angle may change slightly so that for a given contraction, uh, it may actually provide more movement. And I'll be honest, that's not really uh, um, something I worry about too much from the aspect of uh, um, prescribing training, but... It is a consideration um, about what might be the most efficient muscle action for a given task. And so for something like the calf, I posted a little video recently about toe walking, but uh, in fast runners, you want the calf muscles to be working uh, pretty much isometrically. So they're not really changing length is what that means during the movement. Uh, so the Achilles tendon will get stretched as that foot comes in contact with the ground, but you want the calf muscles to be strong enough to hold that same shorter length. Uh, whereas if they're not strong enough, then that muscle will start to lengthen and you won't get the same kind of elastic recoil uh, through the tendon as you would if the muscle was able to be more rigid. And in that example, I think very few people work on the strength of their feet uh, or their calves in that way normally. And so if you're practicing kind of walking on the balls of your feet and uh, on your tiptoes, that's just sort of a low intensity opportunity to strengthen your calves in that isometric, uh, in that isometric fashion there. Okay. So if you were going to talk to an everyday person that's trying to uh, increase power transfer um, and, and kind of think about some of these concepts, what are some of the tips that you would give them? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it would depend on what their starting point is in terms of their knowledge, but uh, I would uh, try to relay some of those same concepts of wanting a full range of motion to work through uh, and shooting a cannon out of canoe and, and having that drive train all together. But so I'd say most or a lot of people don't really understand the mechanics of the movements they're trying to do that well. So let's say someone learned how to throw it at some time when they were young and they don't really think about it too much. And then maybe they want to throw better and they just figure getting stronger will be a way to do that. And then they just do typical strength training movements on top of that. I would say the best place to start is to get some slow motion videos of themselves uh, throwing and then or doing whatever activity and then compare that to some of the best movers in the world and try to see what's happening to start to be aware of those connections across their body uh, and to try to identify where the leak weak links are for them. Uh, the way I in normally um, for clients, I do more of that process and then I'll educate them along the way. Uh, and I believe that's absolutely essential if you want to get the most out of a person uh, or an athlete long-term is they need to become experts in the, in the movement and the sport. But uh you could call it doing a gap analysis and a needs analysis. And so the uh, kind of first thing is having a goal and knowing where you want to be and then identifying what the gaps are currently. So what is the difference between where you are now and the technique that's uh, or whatever it is, that's going to give you the power that you want. Uh, then identifying um, yeah, what areas need improvement and making a plan about how you're going to get there and actually doing it. Uh, and it seems really obvious and simple, but not a lot of people actually uh, even go that far. They're just, uh, you know, it might just be simple, like, well, I'll just get stronger and I'll keep working hard and things will come together. Uh, but uh, once you start to understand mechanics and most sports are way more similar um, and the human body really has a limited number of ways where it can move or how it can move and still be efficient. Uh, and so once the gates have kind of opened for that and you understand that, then it's fairly easy to look at a video and say like, uh, okay, I see how, like, for my, I'm doing a sprint start and I got popped up or, or I'm doing a sled push and my core opens up. Maybe I'll uh, try to do some movements where I can hold my core position under load. And that's where I like some of the pendulum work. Um, and then just reevaluating that video over time. But uh 
just yeah, slow motion video is uh, the best place I would start. Would start, and then uh, and then seeing some of the people out there who who move well and uh, and seem to get it. Definitely. So, if there is one principle that you could tell any kind of athlete that's just in the gym to focus on, what would that be? Mm, any kind of athlete. Uh, well, the principle, I guess, I, I mean, uh, I do think the, the spine and posture has sort of a, a central importance. So I would, that would be a more practical thing I would relay or uh, something they could act on about keeping good posture in any movement. Uh, but on the more philosophy side, it would be understanding that everything they do is going to influence everything else they do. And so it's not as simple as like uh, building strength one way, and then you can just choose to use things differently. Uh, they do have to get very kind of granular about where they want to build tension in their body uh, to make sure that fits the end goal. Okay. So what are some of the tips that you use for stress and fatigue management whenever it comes to an athlete? Yeah, it would, it would depend on uh, where they're and where they're coming from, but uh, I'm a big fan of that energetic perspective. Uh, and so nutrition is the first place I like to look and uh, to say that like every stressor and to recognize that every stressor that you're faced with whether physical or mental is an energy demand for you, uh, whether that's, you know, physical and it's just the energy cost of locomotion or moving your body, or it's uh, a problem that your brain is consuming energy to try to problem solve. Uh, and so usually when someone starts to feel stressed, that's, uh, that's a sign that the energy demands on them are greater than the energy that your body is supplying at that moment. And knowing those concepts and then knowing for themselves, like one of the easiest ways you can reduce stress is just bump up the amount of energy that your body's making. And so sometimes that may just involve total calorie intake or sometimes that's more uh, managing their ability to turn calories into actual ATP or energy and more sort of the micronutrients involved with that. I think a simple e-complex goes a long way with a lot of people. Um, and that's, that's usually the first place I would start. Uh, and I think the ideal is that you make as much energy as possible and you do as much as possible. The, you know, easy thing to do, uh, which isn't necessarily wrong, but is also just to say like, well, reduce 
the amount of energy you're spending so we can do less training and then your balance might be better and you'll move forward more that way if you're uh, in balance with less training than if you're trying to do too much uh, and then you just tank yourself. But uh, again, like um, if you can make more energy and do more with it, I like sort of a financial analogy on that end too, but it's pretty important that your bank account is balanced and that you're not losing money at the end of the month or whatever it may be. And so, uh, you know, whether you're making, if you're making a thousand and you're spending 1100, that's a problem. And if you're making 10 million and you're spending 11 million, that's a problem too. Uh, in either of those scenarios, like whether your income is high or low, it's important that the books are balanced at the end of the day, week, month, or whatever. But uh, balance is number one. But then that absolute number also makes a big difference. Like uh, if you're making a thousand and spending nine hundred, you're in a positive balance there. But you have a lot less opportunity to do things with that money or your money than if you were making ten million and spending nine million. So the more energy you have running through the system, uh, it's just more opportunity for you to do things with that. And so that's always kind of goal and strategy. Number one for me is let's maximize the income. Uh, and then as needed, like we'll cut off some of the expenses and you can prioritize uh, what is and what isn't important to your life and ideally cut out the less important ones for your, your goals before you're, say, cutting down training volume if you're an athlete or a person that has an athletic goal. Definitely. Yeah. What are some um, – have you kind of experimented with different kinds of macronutrient ratios to see, like, versus – um, preparing for a training session versus throughout the day or just overall macronutrient composition that is typically more favorable? Yeah. I mean, I've played around with a lot of different things over the years. Uh, and I like to keep it fairly balanced in terms of the overall, uh, whatever it, when I'm tracking, it's probably more around like uh, 30% protein, 20 to 25% fat, and the rest carbs. I default a little bit more to the carb side because that's where I've felt better. Uh, I do feel better if I go very low fat as well. Uh, my body loves running on carbs, but I do find that my blood sugar is a little bit less stable if I do that. And so uh, it's great when I can maintain it and if I can be on top of my meals. But uh, if I'm busy and I don't have those opportunities, then things derail more easily and it just becomes more of a net negative then. Uh, similar lines for, for workouts, I don't really do uh, – 
anything special with that. And that's just in terms of the net balance of like the energy and time I put into preparation. Uh, and I haven't really um, noticed much of a benefit from doing more like very workout nutrition. So I just eat my normal meals and I train and then I eat my normal meals and that seems to work pretty well for me. Awesome. So do you think that, you know, at rest, one of the common ideas is that the muscles use the intramuscular triglycerides for energy. Do you think that someone could take um, advantage of that and use their carbohydrates more around training? Uh, yeah, probably. Uh, I mean, you have, I think that's like, I, I do like using that, uh, RP diet app sometimes if I want to lean out and I think they structured in that way into their software where it does supply more carbs around the training. But, uh, in terms of the magnitude of that effect, uh, I think it's relatively small in comparison to just uh, being consistent with your balance at the end of the day. So most people, I would say, have so many consistency issues that like uh, they really just need to focus on that and then not worry too much about the minutiae there because you know, they'll, they'll get more out of having nine out of 10 meals or uh, just 90% consistency overall, then they w will be like worrying about carbs around workouts. And then just a little bit of extra hassle if you're doing meal prep, to try and uh, know what's what and mix things around. Uh, but there might be a, th a theoretical advantage to that. Like, um, uh, again, people debate all the time about whether it's important, whether you're actually, um, you know, whether you're burning fat, uh, at rest or at the workout and adjusting your workouts for that in terms of fat loss and leanness. Um, and in my experience, it just hasn't been as important as being on top of the, the overall balance there, there might be an advantage. I know you have an interest in, um, sort of the, uh, hormonal environment around the workout. And so maybe just in terms of managing the stress a little bit more, I think if you're tapping into, um, your energy a lot during your workout, you could probably make that workout less stressful by having more carbs around it. Uh, and then there's just less stress on your body um, the rest of the time. So you can probably uh, manage things better with uh, more relaxed carbs or more fat the rest of the time. And I would maybe come at it from that end. And, and I guess the importance of that too would probably matter how lean you are to begin with and what the size of your deficit was. So uh, an example with myself again, like 
I've used all sorts of different or played around with all sorts of different dieting strategies over the years. If I'm starting off at 16% body fat, really doesn't matter. Like nothing's very stressful to my body at that point because I have a lot of reserves, like liver is probably full of glycogen, lots of fat stores, leptin is high. You're getting the signals that everything is okay. Uh, but when you're getting 10% and below, uh, those alarm bells are going to be ringing a lot more readily. And uh, the more those bells are sounding, the more likely it is that uh, you're going to get thrown off your diet by um, cravings or wanting to binge or whatnot. And so that that's probably where I'd say is... Uh, that strategy becomes more helpful and maybe timing things in that way where uh, if someone's just starting out, like don't worry about the extra hassle, just be consistent. But okay, now you're nine, 10%. Now we need to dial this in uh, because the stakes are higher. Okay. So in terms of leanness and trying to achieve a certain physique, there, one of the recommendations that I typically tend to stick around is to not necessarily worry about getting, um, you know, around the 10% body fat range if someone's under the age of 25 because they still have a fun, like a tremendous amount of growth potential that's there. What are some of your um, tips for somebody who is under that age that would still like to get lean? but without hurting the growth potential that's there? Yeah, I'd say the best things would just be use, like still take your time. Don't do crash diets. Use very moderate deficits. And uh, on the same token, like uh, if you're trying to bulk at some other time, not really going overboard with it so that you don't have a long way to come down from that uh, if you put a lot of fat on in that process. So if you're uh, ahead of things enough that you are just fairly reasonable with your excesses, then you'll never really have to worry about putting in too much of an excess deficit later on. And the other tip would just be to still really focus on uh, nutrient-dense foods, uh, especially, I think there's there's probably a lot of things that uh, people attribute to calories uh, that are more, maybe more related to the fact that certain nutrients are dropping uh, when you're reducing your calorie intake. And so you can probably mitigate some of the bad effects of the calorie deficit just by making sure what you are eating is very high quality or using uh, the right supplements when it's warranted. Definitely. Um, so in terms of kind of protecting the metabolic rate whenever you are in a deficit, one of the kind of tips that I've seen is um, keeping calcium high to make sure the calcium to phosphorus ratio is there. Um, what are some of the other tips that you would kind of give to make sure that you're protecting the metabolic during that time? 
Yeah, I would say like the calcium's a good one. Uh, and I think it seems kind of, uh, it seems kind of quackish when you say that like some, a lot of our hormones are regulated by nutrients. Uh, a lot of people accept very readily, like it's uh, about how the regulation of calcium metabolism and uh, vitamin D and parathyroid hormone and the things along that axis. But then if you start suggesting other hormones are regulated uh, by different nutrients, it's uh, it just seems further out there and there's not as much good acceptance of that. But I would say pretty much keeping every electrolyte high is going to be beneficial. Uh, so uh, if your sodium, like, uh, as you suggested, like if your calcium intake drops, then parathyroid hormone and some other inflammatory things that are going to cause you to lose muscle will go up. If your sodium intake's too low, then, uh, that will have an effect on increasing aldosterone and uh, prolactin, among other things. And that will, again, more inflammatory environment, less testosterone. Through the aldosterone, you'll start losing potassium and magnesium. Cells will become more excitable uh, and just more uh, uh sort of stressy and firing in general and not relaxed. And so keeping all of them high, sodium, uh, calcium, potassium, magnesium is a really underrated strategy to maintain muscle mass while dieting. Um, I, I've recalled, I was trying to find this a while ago, but I've recalled uh, seeing a study where... Um, an electrolyte supplement prevented muscle loss, like in a bed rest type scenario uh, or a disuse atrophy type scenario. But I couldn't find it in my notes when I was looking for it later. But uh, related to that is, uh, you know, minerals like zinc. And that's one of the things I think uh, is probably associated with the muscle building and anti atrophy effects of protein. Uh, in general. And that's one of the reasons why I much prefer real food to protein supplements where there's other nutrients and in, in minerals in meat, uh, such as zinc. But uh, I think Chris Masterjohn's written um, some things about the regulation of zinc in the body and how much it takes for to build new muscle and how the probably muscle is the last thing the body would prioritize and really tries to maintain a steady zinc concentration in its cells. And so if you're moved to a lower calorie intake, uh, and especially if the amount of zinc rich foods you're eating was low to begin with, and you're not supplementing, uh, your body is going to start to break down muscle in order to shift that zinc to the more uh, priority areas. And, and that's one I think is probably conflated a little bit with overall protein intake where 
protein rich foods tend to have more zinc and uh, you could probably eat less protein and uh, consume more, more zinc and more minerals and be okay. That's uh, just my hunch. There's not really a lot of good evidence for that, but um, it's, uh, it's done all right for me and some clients. So Definitely. Um, now, whenever you're supplementing with zinc, do you also make sure to increase your copper intake as well to kind of keep that ratio balanced? Yeah, I do. And I, I actually uh, think about two years ago, I was supplementing zinc regularly and just playing around with higher doses. And then I, um, I got just a, a viral illness. But when I had some blood work done, I think my white cell count was very low, which uh, can be a symptom of a common symptom of copper deficiency. And then I had my, actually I had my copper proteins, the ceruloplasmin and something else tested and they were low as well. So I think most zinc supplements are way overdosed to begin with, uh, given that there are limits to how much we can absorb at once. So I try to stick to things that are lower dose to begin with and just have that more often. Uh, if I think I need more, but then also to, to be on top of copper intake if I'm supplementing zinc. Okay. Yeah, there's, uh, it's unfortunate there's not a lot of, uh, newer research on this, but there is more older research on all sorts of different nutrient interactions. And, uh, I do like, Copper is sort of the most well-known one, but a lot of those minerals with the same charge use the same transporters. So I do wonder uh, about things like manganese and magnesium and whatnot, if you're uh, really just kind of overloading one thing and not keeping tabs on the rest of those. Uh, Some people would sort of get discouraged from trying at all. And I don't think uh, that's necessarily the answer either because most diets certainly aren't balanced. So if you can afford it for sure, do testing. Uh, And if you can't, or you don't want to do that, then, then you're kind of left to trial and error. Okay. So outside of nutrition, what are some of the best recovery tips that you could give whenever somebody is wanting to come back to the gym as strong and powerful as possible. Uh, yeah, and there's uh, like getting a good night's sleep, and if you're not sleeping well, uh, trying to address the things that are leading up to that. And that for me, that would usually relate to light exposure and to nutritional things again. And then the other one would be uh, just being on top of uh, myofascial release uh, because recognizing like in power, he's just describing a rate of energy transfer. And so most people are thinking about the size of the engine. But if you realize that elastic quality 
uh, is going to play a big part in that. Then making sure that you're not going into your next session with a lot of the wrong tension that's going to prevent you from, from using that, that if you do that, that will allow you to express power better. Okay. Um, I do, uh, like I'm a fan of some of the, uh, or the red light research and the photobiomodulation, but there's a lot of big question marks there too for me right now about optimal kind of dose and amount. And uh, I just don't have that nailed down enough yet to be confident that it's, it would be a worthwhile investment for most people outside of uh, um, maybe buying some cheap chicken lamps and, and keeping warm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that uh, that can be an underrated thing is uh, checking your temperature and pulse or uh, HRV if you have tools for that and um, starting to recognize the things outside of training that uh, uh, send those variables in the wrong direction uh, and then and training when you're ready. Okay. Um, I actually saw a study uh, in terms of photobiomodulation whenever they used um, LLT. They actually were contemplating whether or not they should have it uh, banned from professional sports because it was so powerful that it could actually be used as a performance-enhancing drug. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'd have to read that. Uh, I'd want to read that specific one. Uh, but I know, like, there were some – I forget which sprinter – Exactly. Maybe it was Tyson Gay, but there's that uh, or uh, uh, Thor device, which is basically like the the tanning bed full of the red lasers. Uh, and I think they were using that prior to the Olympics. Uh, but I mean, on some of the animal research, like uh, if you ramp up metabolism too much you can start to cause some oxidative stress in your system might not be ready for that like um to the point where it might be detrimental and i think a good place where we could probably get some more insight from that is uh looking at plant research and i've done a little bit of that but i haven't really uh delved too much into it but uh i actually bought uh an LED setup that's more for growing plants. Uh, it's, I bought it a while ago when the human devices were uh, just way more expensive and they provided less than the ones you could just get as a grow light. But one of the nice things too is uh, it doesn't just have the red lights, but it's got the infrared and UV and blue. And so you can adjust that all with the remote depending on what effect you might be trying to get after, but they have some instructions in there. Like if you have a, a young seedling and you run this thing at full power, you're going to kill it. So uh, if it's a young plant, not used to the light exposure, you start at like 20% red, 10% blue. And then that will match where that organism is at and allow it to survive. And then as it gets adapted to the light exposure, 
you ramp it up. And uh, I imagine there's something similar for humans and there's, there would be similar things for UV light exposure in terms of like getting a tan and being able to tolerate more. Uh, but we're just, we're not, we're a long way there from the research right now. And I don't, yeah, I, I think even the same things would apply for red light where it's just not going to be universally beneficial at every like intensity and duration. Yeah. So um, for some of the listeners that want to take a deep dive into some of the principles that you talk about, what are some resources that you recommend? I would say like uh, the very first place is uh, just the anatomy trains book and understanding like normal, normal quote unquote muscle function too, but uh, what muscles are and what are the typical actions, but then layering that on top of uh, uh, a knowledge of how those chains tend to work. And then uh, definitely I, like I've, found a lot of value from uh, digging into the, the functional pattern stuff. And I did, it was just this year that I did their human foundations course. Uh, but um, I mean, I was like a lot of people where I was exposed a few years ago when I was heavy into weightlifting and powerlifting and just kind of disregarded it because of the way Naudi was talking and basically saying like, Oh, you're, you're stupid if you're doing this. And then I didn't understand at the time how some of the pendulum stuff was where it seemed like you're using momentum and you're not developing the engines. Uh, I didn't understand how that was going to be beneficial. Um, But again, as I shifted my framework and I was more ready for that information later, uh, I can definitely see his perspective on things. Um, and then I think uh, you know David Weck and go to have some interesting perspectives on movement as well that are uh, worth looking into. Um, and those would probably be the the top ones that I would suggest right now. Heck yeah! Um, where can people find your work and kind of get uh, see some of the stuff that you're doing? Yeah, uh, so probably. The most frequently updated right now is just my Instagram page uh, at Nicholas Simpson underscore fit. Um, I do have some websites that's just a bit of a placeholder now. The My personal page is more just for people to see what I'm up to. And then things on the client side are at Vital Strength Physiology uh, on their Instagram. And then uh, Up to Fate is uh, with a pH uh, as where I like to share research and ideas around energy metabolism. So there's an Instagram for that and a Twitter where I just uh, share some of the research that I'm reading or skimming. Heck yeah. Well, um, thanks for watching. Uh, if any of y'all have not looked into Nick's work, it is really cool. He has a great Instagram. Um, so go check him out. And if you're not in the Facebook group yet, make sure to get in there.